Chapter Twenty Six of Diana. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Diana by Susan Warner. Chapter Twenty Six. Things Undone. The mischief maker slept peacefully till morning. Nobody else. Diana did not keep awake. It is true, she was at that dull stage of misery when something like stupor comes over the brain. She slumbered heavily from time to time. Nature does claim such a privilege sometimes. It was Basil who watched the night through, watched and prayed. There was no stupor in his thoughts. He had a very full, though vague, realization of great evil that had come upon them both. He was very near the truth too. After an hour or two of pondering, putting together Miss Collins' hints, Diana's own former confessions, and her present condition together. He saw clearer than it was good to see the probable state of affairs, and yet he was glad to see it. If any help or bettering was ever to come, it was desirable that his vision should be true, and his wisdom have at least firm data to act upon. But what action could touch the case, the most difficult that a man can have to deal with? Through the night, Basil alternately walked the floor and knelt down, sometimes at his study table. Sometimes before the open window, where it seemed almost as if he could read signs of that invisible sympathy he was seeking. The air was a little frosty, but very still. He kept up a fire in his chimney, and Basil was not one of those ministers who live in perpetual terror about draughts. It was a comfort to him tonight to look off and away from earth, even though he could not see into heaven. The stars were witnesses to him and for him in their eternal calmness. He calleth them all by their names, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, My way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? And in answer to the unspoken cry of appeal that burst forth as he knelt there by the window, O Lord, my strength, my fortress, and my refuge in the day of affliction, came the unspoken promise. The mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. The minister had something such a night of it as Jacob had before his meeting with Esau, with the difference that there was no lameness left the next morning. Before the dawn came up, when the stars were fading, Basil threw himself on the lounge in his study. And went into a sleep as deep and peaceful as his sleeps were wont to be, and when he rose up after some hours, he was entirely himself again, refreshed and restored and ready for duty. Neither could anybody, that day or afterwards, see the slightest change in him from what he had been before. He went out and attended to his horse. The minister always did that himself. Then came in and changed his dress and went through his morning toilet with the usual dainty care. Then he went in to see Diana. She had awaked at last out of her slumberous stupor, sorry to see the light and know that it was day again. Another day. Why should there be another day for her? What use? Why could she not die and be out of her trouble? Another day, and now would come, had come, the duties of it. How was she to meet them? How could she do them? Life energy was gone. She was dead. How was she to play the part of the living and among the living? What mockery! And Basil, what would become of him? 
As for Evan, Diana dared not so much in her thoughts as even to glance his way. She had risen half up in bed, she had not undressed at all, and was sitting with her arms slung round her knees, gazing at the daylight and wondering vaguely about all these things, when the door between the rooms swung lightly open. If she had dared, Diana would have crouched down and hid her face again. She was afraid to do that. She sat stolidly still, gazing out at the window. Look at Basil she could not. His approach filled her with so great a feeling of repulsion that she would have liked to spring from the bed and flee, anywhere, away and away, where she would see him no more. No such flight was possible. She sat motionless and stared at the window, keeping down the internal shiver which ran over her. Basil came with his light, quick step and stood beside her, took her hand and felt her pulse. "'You are not feeling very well, Di,' he said gravely. "'Well enough,' said Diana. "'I will get up and be down presently.' "'Will you?' said he. "'Now I think you had better not. The best thing you can do will be to lie still here and keep quiet all day. May I prescribe for you?' "'Yes, I will do what you please,' said Diana. She never looked at him, and he knew it. "'Then this is what I think you had better do. Get up and take a bath.' Then put on your dressing-gown, and lie down again. You shall have your breakfast up here, and I will let nobody come up to disturb you. I'm not hungry. I don't want anything. You are a little feverish, but you will be better for taking something. Now you get your bath, and I'll attend to the breakfast. He kissed her brow gravely, guessing that she would rather he did not, but knowing nevertheless that he might and must, for he was her husband, and however gladly she— and unselfishly he, would have broken the relation between them, it subsisted and could not be broken. And then he went downstairs. "'Where's Miss Masters?' demanded Jemima, when she brought in the breakfast tray, standing attention. "'Not coming down.' "'Ain't anything ails her, is there?' "'Yes, but I don't know how serious. Give me the kettle, Jemima. I told her to lie still, and that I would bring her a cup of tea.' I'll take it up, Mr. Masters, and you can eat your breakfast. Thank you. I always like to keep my promises. Fetch in the kettle, Jemima. Jemima dared not but obey. So when Diana, between dead and alive, had done as she was bid, taken her bath and wrapped in her dressing-gown, was laid upon her bed again, her husband made his appearance with a little tray and the tea. There had been a certain bodily refreshment about the bath and the change of dress. But with that little touch of the everyday work of life, there had come such a rebellion against life in general, and all that it held, that Diana was nearly desperate. In place of dull despair had come a wild repulsion against everything that was left her in the world, and yet the girl knew that she would neither die nor go mad, but must just live and bear. She looked at Basil and his tray with a sort of impatient horror. "'I don't want anything,' she said. "'I don't want anything.' "'Try the tea. It is out of the green chest.' Diana had learned, as I said, to know her husband pretty well, and she knew that though the tone in which he spoke was very quiet, and for all a certain sweet insistence in it could scarcely be said to be urging, nevertheless there was under it something to which she must yield. His will never had clashed with hers once. Nevertheless Diana had seen and known that whatever Basil wanted to do with anybody, he did. Everybody granted it to him, somehow. So did she now. 
she raised herself up and tasted the tea. "'Eat a biscuit.' "'I don't want it. I don't want anything, Basil.' "'You must eat something, though,' said he. "'It is bad enough for me to have to carry along with me all day the thought of you lying here. I cannot bear in addition the thought of you starving.' "'Oh, no, I am not starving,' Diana answered, and unable to endure to look at him or talk to him, she covered her face with her hands, leaning it down upon her knees. Basil did not say anything, nor did he go away. He stood beside her, with an outflow of compassion in his heart, but waiting patiently. At last touched her smooth hair with his hand. "'Die,' said he gently. "'Look up and take something.' She hastily removed her hands, raised her head, swallowed the tea, and managed to swallow the biscuit with it. He leaned forward and kissed her brow, as he had done last night. "'Now lie down and rest,' said he. "'I must ride over to Blackberry Hill again, and I do not know how long I may be kept there. I will tell Jemima to let no visitors come up to bother you. Lie still and rest. I will give you a pillow for your thoughts, Di. Under the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge, until these calamities be overpassed.' He went away, and Diana covered her face again. She could not bear the light. Her whole nature was in uproar. The bath and dressing, the tea, her husband's presence and words, his last words especially, had roused her from her stupor, and given her, as it were, a scale with which to measure the full burden of her misery. There was no item wanting, Diana thought, to make it utterly immeasurable and unbearable. If she had married a less good man, it would have been less hard to spoil all his hopes of happiness. If he had been a weaker man, she would not have cared about him at all. If any hand but her own mother's had dashed her cup of happiness out of her hand, she would have had there a refuge to go to. Most girls have their mothers. If Evan had not been sent to so distant a post. But when her thoughts dared turn to Evan, Diana writhed upon her bed in tearless agony. Evan, writing in all the freshness and strength of his love and his trust in her, those letters— waiting and looking for her answer, writing again and again, disappointed all the while, and at last obliged to conclude that there was no faith in her, and that her love had been a sham or a fancy. What had he not suffered on her account, even as she had suffered for him? But that he should think so of her was not to be borne. She would write. Might she write? From hiding her head on a pillow, Diana sat bolt upright now, and stared at the light, as if it could tell her, might she write to Evan, just once, this once, to tell him how it had been? Would that be any wrong against her husband? Would Basil have any right to forbid her? The uneasy sense of doubt here was met by a furious rebellion against any authority that would interfere with her doing herself, as she said, so much justice, and giving herself and Evan so much miserable comfort. Could there be a right to hinder her? Suppose she were to ask Basil— but what disclosures that would involve! Would he bear them, or could she? Better write without his knowledge. Then, on the other hand, Basil was so upright himself, so true and faithful, and trusted her so completely. No, she never could deceive his trust, not if she died. Oh, that she could die! But Diana knew that she was not going to die. Suppose she charged her mother with what she had done, and get her to write and confess it. A likely thing, that Mrs. Starling would be wrought upon, to make such a humiliation of herself. She was forced to give up that thought. 
and indeed she was not clear about the essential distinction between communicating directly herself with Evan, and getting another to do it for her. And what had been Mrs. Starling's motive in keeping back the letters? But Diana knew her mother, and that problem did not detain her long. For hours and hours Diana's mind was like a stormy sea, where the thunder and the lightning were not wanting any more than the wind. Once in a while, like the faint blink of a sun-ray through the clouds, came an echo of the words Basil had quoted, "'In the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge.' But they hurt her so that she fled from them. The contrast of their peace with her turmoil, of their intense sweetness with the bitter passion which was wasting her heart, the hint of that harbour for the storm-tossed vessel, which could only be entered, she knew, by striking sail. All that was unbearable. I suppose there was a whisper of conscience, too, which said, Strike sail and go in, while passion would not take down an inch of canvas. Could not, she said to herself. Could she submit to have things be as they were, submit and be quiet and accept them and go her way accepting them and put the thought of evan away and live the rest of her life as though he had no existence that was the counsel basil would give she had an unrecognized consciousness and for the present pain was easier to bear than that and now memory flew back over the years and took up again the thread of her relations with evan and traced them to their beginning, and went over all the ground, going back and forward, recalling every meeting, and reviewing every one of those two scanty hours. For a long while she had not been able to do this, because Evan, she thought, had been faithless, and in that case she really never had had what she thought she had in him. Now she knew he was not faithless, and she had got the time and him back again, and she in a sort reveled in the consciousness. And with that came then the thought, too late. She had got him again, only to see an impassable barrier set between, which must keep them apart for ever. And that barrier was her husband. What the thought of Basil, or rather what his image was to Diana that day, it is difficult to tell. She shunned it whenever it appeared, with an intolerable mingling of contradictory feelings. Her fate, and yet more like a good angel to her than anybody that had ever crossed the line of her path the destroyer of her hope and joy forever, and yet one to whom she was bound, and to whom she owed all possible duty and affection. She wished it were possible never to see him again in the world, and at the same time there was not another in the world of whom she believed all the good she believed of him. His image was dreadful to her. Basil was the very center-point of her agonized struggles that day. To be parted from Evan she could have borne, if she might have devoted herself to the memory of him, and lived in quiet sorrow. But to put this man in his place, to belong to him, to be his wife. In proportion to the strength and health of Diana's nature was the power of her realization and the force of her will, but also the possibility of endurance. The internal fight would have broken down a less pure and sound bodily organization, it was characteristic of this natural soundness and sweetness, which was mental as well as physical, that her mother's part in the events which had destroyed her happiness had very little of her attention that day. She thought of it with a kind of sore wonder and astonishment, in which resentment had almost no share. "'Oh, mother, mother,' she said in her heart, but she said no more. Miss Collins came up once or twice to see her, but Diana lay quiet, and was able to baffle curiosity. "'Are you going to get up and come down to supper?' 
the handmaid asked in the second visit, which occurred late in the afternoon. "'I don't know. I shall do what Mr. Masters says.' "'You don't look as if there was much ail in you. And yet you look kind of queer, too. I shouldn't wonder a bit if you was gettin' a fever. There's a red spot on one of your cheeks that's like fire. T'other one's pale enough. You must be in a fever, I guess, or you couldn't lie here with the window open.' "'Leave it open, and just let me be quiet.' Miss Collins went down, marveling to herself. But when Basil came home he found the flush spread to both cheeks, and a look in Diana's eyes that he did not like. "'How has the day been?' he asked, passing his hand over the flushed cheek and the disordered hair. Diana shrank and shivered, and did not answer. He felt her pulse. "'Diana,' said he, "'what is the matter with you?' She stared at him, in the utter difficulty of answering. "'Basil,' she began, and stopped, not finding another word to add, for prevarication was an accomplishment Diana knew nothing of. She closed her eyes, that they might not see the figure standing there. "'Would you like me to fetch your mother to you?' "'No,' she said, starting. "'Oh, no, don't bring her, Basil.' "'I will not,' said he kindly. "'Why should she not come?' "'Mother? Never! 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 Not mother! I can't bear her!' said Diana strangely. Mr. Masters went downstairs, looking very grave. He took his supper, for he needed it, and then he carried up a cup of tea, fresh made, to Diana. She drank it this time eagerly, but there was no lightening of his grave brow when he carried the cup down again. Something was very much the matter. He knew now, as he had feared it last night. He debated with himself whether he had better try to find out just what it was. Miss Collins, by a judicious system of suggestion and inquiry, might be led perhaps to reveal something without knowing that she revealed anything. But the minister disliked that way of getting information, when it could be dispensed with. He had enough knowledge to act upon. For the rest he was patient and could wait. That night he knew Diana did not sleep. He himself passed the night again in his study though not in the struggles of the night before. He was very calm, steadfast, diligent, that is, his usual self entirely. And watching her, without her knowing he watched, he knew by her breathing and her changes of position that it was a night of no rest on her part. Once he saw she was sitting up in the bed. Once he saw that she had left it and was sitting by the window. The next day the minister did not leave home. He had no more urgent business anywhere, he thought, than there. And he found Diana did not make up by day what she had lost by night. She was always staring wide awake whenever he went into the room. And he went there whenever there was a cup of tea or a cup of broth to be taken to her, for he prepared it and carried it to her himself. It happened in the course of the afternoon that Prince and the little old green wagon came jogging along and landed Mrs. Starling at the minister's door. This was a very rare event. Mrs. Starling came at long intervals to see her daughter, and made then a call which nobody enjoyed. Today Miss Collins hailed the sight of her. Indeed, if the distance had not been too much, Miss Collins would have walked down to carry the tidings of Diana's indisposition. For, like a true gossip, she scented mischief where she could see none. The minister would let her have nothing to do with his wife, and if he were out of the house, and she got a chance, she could make nothing of Diana. Nothing certain, but nothing either that lulled her suspicions. 
now with Miss Starling, there was no telling what she might get at. The lady dismounted and came into the kitchen, looking about her, as always, with sharp eyes. "'How do you do?' she said. "'Where is Diana?' "'I'm glad to see ye, Miss Starling, and that's a fact,' said the handmaid. "'I was most a mind to walk down to your place to-day.' "'What's the matter? Where's Diana?' "'Wall, she's upstairs. She hain't been down now for two days.' "'What's the reason?' "'Well, something ain't right, and I don't think the minister's clear what it is, and I ain't. She was took as sudden. You never see nothin' suddener. She come in here to fix a dish o' eggs for supper, that she's mighty particular about, and don't think no one can cook eggs but herself. And I was talkin' and tellin' her about my old experiences in the post-office, and she went upstairs and took to her bed, and she hain't left it sen. Now ain't that queer? Cause she didn't say nothin' ailed her. Not a word, only she went up and took to her bed, and she doos look queer at you, that I will say. Mebbe it's a fever comin' on. There was a minute or two's silence. Mrs. Starling did not immediately find her tongue. What have the post-office and your stories got to do with it? she asked harshly. I should like to know. Yes, said Miss Collins, drawing out the word with affable intonation. That's what beats me. What should they? But la, the post-office is queer, that's what I always said. Everybody gets into it, and ef you're there, of course you can't help knowin' things. You weren't in the post-office, said Mrs. Starling. It was none of your business. Warn't I? said Miss Collins. Don't you mind better in that, Miss Starling? I mind you comin', and I mind givin' you your letters, too. I mind some particular big ones that had stamps enough on to set up a shop. La, tain't no harm. Miss Gunn, she used to feel a sort of sameness about always takin' in and givin' out. And then she'd come into the kitchen and make cake, mebby, and send me to tend the letters and the folks. And then it was as good as a play to me. Don't you never get tired o' trottin' a mile in a bushel, Miss Starlin'? So I was just a-tellin' Diany. Where's the minister? Most likely he's where she is, upstairs. He won't let nobody else do a hand's turn for her. He takes up every cup of tea, and he spreads every bit of bread and butter, and he tastes the broths. You'd think he was anything in the world but a minister. He tastes the broth, and he calls for the salt and pepper, and he stirs, and he tastes, and then, you never see a man make such a fuss, leastways I never did. He'll have a white napkin and spread over a tray, and the cup on it, and a saucer too, for he won't have the cup without the saucer, and then carry it off. Was your husband like that, Miss Starling? He was a minister, I've heard tell. Mrs. Starling turned short about without answering and went upstairs. She found the minister there, as Miss Collins had opined she would, but she paid little attention to him. He was just drawing the curtains over a window, where the sunlight came in too glaringly. As he had done this, and turned, he was a spectator of the meeting between mother and child. It was peculiar. Mrs. Starling advanced to the foot of the bed, came no nearer, but stood there looking down at her daughter. And Diana's eyes fastened on hers, with a look of calm, cold intelligence. It was intense enough, yet there was no passion in it. I suppose there was too much despair. However, it was, as I said, keen and intent, and it held Mrs. Starling's eye like a vice. Those Mr. Masters could not see. The lady's back was towards him. But he saw how Diana's eyes pinioned her, and how strangely still Mrs. Starling stood. "'What's the matter with you?' she said harshly at last. 
"'You ought to know,' said Diana, not moving her eyes. "'I ain't a conjurer,' Mrs. Starling returned, with a sort of snort. "'What makes you look at me like that?' Diana gave a short, sharp laugh. "'How can you look at me?' she said. "'I know all about it, mother.' Mrs. Starling, with a sudden determination, went round to the head of the bed, and put out her hand to feel Diana's pulse. Diana shrank away from her. "'Keep off!' she cried. "'Basil, Basil, don't let her touch me!' "'She is out of her head,' said Mrs. Starling, turning to her son-in-law, and speaking half loud. "'I had better stay and sit up with her.' "'No!' cried Diana. "'I don't want you. Basil, don't let her stay. Basil, Basil!' The cry was urgent and pitiful. Her husband came near, arranged the pillows, for she had started half up, and putting her gently back upon them, said in his calm tones, "'Be quiet, Di. You command here. Mrs. Starling, shall we go downstairs?' Mrs. Starling this time complied without making any objection, but as she reached the bottom she gave vent to her opinion. "'You are spoiling her.' "'Really, I should like to have the chance.' "'What do you mean by that?' "'Just the words. I should like to spoil Di. She has never had much of that sort of bad influence.' "'That sounds very weak, to me,' said Mrs. Starling. "'To whom should a man show himself weak, if not toward his wife?' said Basil, carelessly. "'Your wife will not thank you for it.' "'I will endeavour to retain her respect,' said Basil, in the same way, which aggravated Mrs. Starling beyond bounds. "'Something about him always did try her temper,' she said to herself. "'Diana is going to have a fever,' she spoke abruptly. "'I am afraid of it.' "'What's brought it on?' "'I came home two evenings ago and found her on the bed.' "'You don't want me, you say. "'Who do you expect is going to sit up with her and take care of her?' "'I will try what I can do for the present.' "'You can't manage that and your out-of-door work, too.' "'I will manage that,' said Basil significantly. "'And let your parish work go? "'Well, I always thought a minister was bound to attend to his people.' "'Yes. Isn't my wife more one of my people than anybody else? "'Will you stay and take a cup of tea, Mrs. Starling?' "'No. If you don't want me, I am going. "'What will you do if Diana gets delirious? "'I think she's out of her head now.' "'I'll attend to her,' said Basil composedly. "'Half suspecting a double meaning in his words, "'Mrs. Starling took short leave and drove off. "'Not quite easy in her mind, if the truth be told.' and glad to be out of all patience with the minister. Yes, if she had known how things would turn. If she had known, perhaps, she would not have thrown that first letter into the fire, which had drawn her on to throw the second in and the third. Could any son-in-law, could Evan Knowlton at least, have been more untoward for her wishes than the one she had got? More unmanageable he could not have been, nor more likely to be spoony about Diana. And now what if Diana really should have a fever? People talk out in delirium. Well, the minister would keep his own counsel. She did not care, she said. But all the same, she did care, and she would fain have been the only one to receive Diana's revelations, if she could have managed it. And by what devil's conjuration had the truth come to be revealed, when only the fire and she knew anything about it? Mrs. Starling chewed the cud of no sweet fancy on her road home. End of chapter 26